Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the takeout ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Say goodbye to performance robbing engine deposits with Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline. Hate to break it to you, but lower grade fuel can leave deposits in your engine that build up over time and leave your engine's performance severely lacking. Thankfully, Shell V-Power Nitro Plus removes up to 100% of performance-robbing deposits with continuous use in gasoline direct injection engine fuel injectors. Download the Shell app today to find your nearest Shell station and rejuvenate your engine with Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline. Fuel up at Shell. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett from the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett, yes, CBS, yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense, and you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? <laughs> the answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. You know, one of the things that is enjoyable if you're running the White House is you're in charge of the administration. You get to say all sorts of things about yourself, about how hard you're working. And sometimes there's a tendency to invoke superlatives, that you're tirelessly doing something, that you're engaging in best of practices, that you're at the cutting edge of whatever that is you're working on. Administrations do this all the time, Republicans and Democrats. There's nothing wrong with it. I'm not faulting it. But I am observing for the context of the conversation we are going to have this week, Those superlatives better be real because the space, the topic, is cybersecurity and artificial intelligence. And they are not only emerging, but they are changing very rapidly, changing not only how our country functions, not only how technology engages with us at the workplace, in our homes, but everywhere. And there's no better person to talk about that with broadly than Ann Newberger, who is the Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber and Emerging Technologies. Ann, it's great to have you with us. It's great to be here with you, Major. So my audience thinks about cyber in a lot of different ways. Everyone does. You can't help but think about it. I read an estimate in 2025, meaning next calendar year, there'll be $10.5 trillion in estimated losses to cyber crime. That is a very big number. People think about businesses, they think about large government databases, they might not think about two things that you, I know, are thinking about. Hospitals and schools. Tell me why. Like every part of our economy, hospitals and schools have connected systems. So think, for example, when you're checking in for a medical procedure, the hospital will have your history, 
what medical procedures you've had, what drugs you've taken, your reaction to those. And that's and a good fact, thing. That's a great thing. Didn't always ha- wasn't always true. It's, that's very much the case. Because, for example, you may check into one hospital an hour away from your home to get a medical procedure. You may want to do a checkup at a more local clinic so you don't have to take the trip. You want both hospitals to have access to your history. You might be on vacation and something goes awry and you go to a hospital. You want that one to be able to find all of the most important data about you so they can treat you appropriately. Exactly. That's a good thing. That's a great thing. However. However, (laughs) criminals know that too. And what we see is cyber criminals, 75% of whom are based in Russia, increasingly targeting hospitals, leading to systems being encrypted in order to force the hospitals to pay a ransom. Uh, It's a real focus and a real concern for us, and we've started focusing on that with hospitals, with both the American Hospital Association and individual hospitals in a number of ways. Similarly, schools. Children learn online. There's a lot of class records online. There's a lot of sensitive records about children who visited a supervisor for for mental health assistance, which students may be having struggles in class. And what we've seen again is criminals targeting school systems, in some cases leaking sensitive data about kids online. So the president's really committed to obviously Americans' access to medical care, obviously keeping kids safe. So we've put in programs on that as well. Happy to talk more about either of those. When you go to hospitals or schools, are they, and I don't want to use this in a pejorative sense, clueless or less sensitive to this than you would like them to be? They're becoming much more sensitive. The challenges, both sectors, are some of the weakest in terms of cybersecurity that's in place. So they have the really difficult combination of being high value in terms of we know we need medical services, we need education to be completely uninterrupted, we need those records to be protected, and we also have to work with those sectors very quickly to improve their cybersecurity. And I've read in some instances there can be things that shut down a security system within a school, a cyber system, so kids have to go offline and maybe the school has to shut down for a few days. One of this the has key, happened, yes? Absolutely. One of the incidents that really highlighted what could be done in the space and got us to jumpstart was the LA School District, Labor Day uh, a year and a half ago. And essentially criminals locked the LA School District's systems uh, On Labor Day, the day before school opened, the school superintendent reached out, we jumped in, FBI had a team on the ground quickly, and we began working to ensure school could open the next day. And there were a number of rules working with the Department of Education, working with CISA and FBI as we worked throughout that weekend to ensure, and the school was able to open safely. But it highlighted for us how much, A, we needed to ensure schools knew the cybersecurity practices they had to have in Mm -hmm. place, Mm be that the Department of Education was serving to convene. When they bring superintendents together to talk about education, they had to add cybersecurity to that agenda. And C, we needed to make it easier. So we launched, for example, um, at the White House this past August, we had an event called Back to School Safely. The First Lady hosted it as a teacher. She's hugely committed to this topic. And we brought together superintendents, companies that provide tech to schools, as well as educators and cybersecurity experts, and laid out a number of things. First, published the Department of Education and CISA published a guidebook saying, here are the practices schools need in place. Second, in partnership with some tech companies, we launched Project CyberSecure, which offers free cybersecurity services to any school with less than 2,500 kids across the country. Now, a call to action here. There are 9,600 school districts with less than 2,500 kids. 
And just about 100 school districts, with roughly 100,000 students and teachers have signed up. We want to see every one of those 9,600 school districts using those free services to keep kids safe. And I've read that uh, most companies, small, medium, or large, set aside about 10% of their budget a year for cybersecurity. That's probably a rough estimate. It's more for some, less for others. But 10% of any budget is a not insignificant sum. Should school districts find another 10% to beef up their cybersecurity systems? You know, it's interesting. It varies based on which organization, but what does matter is that the head of the organization puts a focus on cybersecurity. So for example, runs an incident response exercise saying, let's pretend we're having a cyber incident right now. Let's pretend all school records are locked, are encrypted. What do we do now? Right. How do we communicate to teachers and parents? How do we operate our school despite that? What will be the rules that we use to recover quickly? What are the relationships we need in our Rolodex now with the local FBI office, with an incident response firm to ensure we can recover quickly? Second, how are we protecting school records? Have we encrypted kids' records? So even if they're stolen, they can't be leaked online, they're encrypted. People can't see them. And then finally, how are we educating teachers and staff to know that each person could be a point of vulnerability? If you click on an email, <laughs> that can lead to, yes. particularly in poorly cyber-secured environments, the entire system being compromised. So those are the kinds of things people should do well in advance to enable them to ensure that they're prepared and to recover quickly if it does occur. This is not giving away any company secrets, folks, but I have to, as a employee of Paramount, go through, I think, every six months, an online cybersecurity refresher course. That's fantastic. Do most companies do that? And is this the kind of thing you need hospitals and school districts to do? Many companies do. It varies, frankly, based on the focus of the company's leadership, based on what industry they're in. So in banking, that's pretty standard. Right. Banks have learned that there's a cost. And entertainment, I think, is probably right behind it. There's a lot of things that is linked to intellectual property, things that are creative that you don't want out and people don't want to, and people do want to break in and find. Mm -hmm. But yes, hospitals and schools absolutely should do the same thing. They're protecting some of the most sensitive records and their operations can't afford even a moment disruption. Quickly, what's ransomware? I mean, the idea of getting something and, and asking for money for it. Ransomware is when generally a group of criminals will gain access to a system and encrypt the data on that system and then ask the owner, whether it's a bank, whether it's a power company, whether it's a school, to pay money in cryptocurrency in order to unlock that system. And if you don't pay, they hold on to it or they threaten to release it. Yes. And most times they get paid, correct? Great question, and it's a very interesting one, because each ransom payment drives the next attack. This is a financially driven cyber attack versus countries' attacks, which may be driven by espionage or to put pressure on a given country. Because they're financially driven, we feel very strongly that companies, entities should not pay a ransom because they're just incentivizing the next attack, either on them, because once you've shown you'll pay once, you get hit again, or on the larger industries. Some of the things- We will pick up on that. Um, let, me, let me jump in, because I've got to hit a break. Ann Newberger is our special guest, Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber and Emerging Technology, segment two of the takeout from Old Debit Grill. Come back. 
If you're constantly on the hunt for a good deal, then you need Rakuten. Rakuten is the smartest way to save money when you shop because members get cash back at over 3,500 stores across every category, including fashion, beauty, electronics, home essentials, traveling, dining, and more. You're already shopping at your favorite stores. Why not save while you're doing it? It's a no-brainer. Get the Rakuten app now and join the 17 million members who are already saving. Cashback rates change daily. See Rakuten.com for details. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Your cash back really adds up. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, the coldest case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Welcome back to The Takeout. Thanks for hanging out with us. I didn't mention this fully enough in the first segment. We're at the Old Ever Grill. It's one of my favorite places in Washington, D.C. We're not here that often, not because they don't like us, just because they're really busy. But today, there's a morning, a little after breakfast, we were able to sneak in, and we're happy about that. Old Ebbett Grill is a great place, and I'm very happy to be back here with the show. And Newberger is our guest this week. She is the National Security Advisor, Deputy National Security Advisor. It's an important distinction for cyber and emerging technology. And you were talking about ransomware. Lean into that a bit more. You don't want companies to pay, but they do. They do. And that's why the criminals keep doing this. Right? Yes. So let's talk about the ransomware ecosystem, a word I don't like, but it just lays out the story here. So on the one hand, you have criminals, three quarters of them based in Russia. And on the other hand, there is malware, malicious software. And those criminals are looking for victims. They often look in, looking, mm -hmm. sorry, Major. Um, they're often looking for high impact victims, individuals who they think will be willing to pay. Right. And they compromise their systems and then try to put pressure on them to pay a ransom via cryptocurrency. So here's the way we've been working to tackle that. First, really equipping companies with cybersecurity practices. So for example, if a company, a school, a hospital has good offline backups, then if their core systems are encrypted, they can recover from a safe backup. And that could prevent them having to pay a ransom, more importantly, be in control of when they return to operations. The second thing is um, the Department of Justice and the Department of Defense have been conducting cyber operations around the world to take down some of the cyber infrastructure that criminals use. For example, how they buy access to vulnerable entities, the malicious software, how they move money. The third thing is the White House formed a partnership with what has grown to 56 countries and entities like Interpol to really tackle how cryptocurrency moves around the world and gets around money laundering controls because this is fundamentally a financially driven sure. crime. So if we can make it riskier, costlier, and harder for criminals to move cryptocurrency, that will tackle how much money they're making. And then as we talked about, really encouraging 
victims not to pay a ransom because that's what grows the problem again and again. So I had an opportunity a couple of years ago to meet someone with a very large public utility in my home state of California. We were having a casual conversation. It was at a ball game. And he happened to mention that his large public utility encounters anywhere from 20,000 to 30,000 probing cyber attacks each day. Does that number surprise you? It doesn't for a large company. And to, you know, probing... Now that's not, not all exactly. as sophisticated as others, but they are, they are detected and cataloged by this large public utility. That's good, because probing is shaking the locks, mm-hmm. trying to find an unlocked digital door, trying to find a vulnerable entry point to a given network. So the fact that they're tracking those probings and able to detect them means they have a good defense. They're looking for it, and they're able to see a probe and block that probe. But that number kind of blew me away. And I guess it shouldn't. This is just the, re- the world in which we currently live. Our entire economy really lives on digital infrastructure today. So that digital infrastructure is often targeted by criminals and countries for different purposes. So yes, large company, delivering power, critical service. Mm-hmm. One can expect that any number of criminals and countries are interested in trying to find ways to break in. And we're going to get to a deeper conversation about artificial intelligence in a moment, but is there an overlay here between artificial intelligence generating faster ways by which to create either probing or cybersecurity infiltrating methods? Exactly. It's both. It's both infiltrating methods and potentially really promising ways to defend. On both sides? On both sides. Which is ahead of the other? (laughs) It's far, you know, I've had the privilege of running both offensive and defensive operations. Um, In the intelligence community, it's always easier to be on the attack. So let's look around where we are sitting right now. Mm -hmm. From a physical attacker perspective, there's any number of doors, windows, potentially openings in the ceiling that would enable an attacker to come in. From a defender's perspective, you've got to watch each of them. An attacker only needs one Mm -hmm. to be open. And in the digital space, the same thing applies. So what we really need to do is ensure that defense, we're using an AI-driven defense to stay as much as we can one step ahead of AI-driven offense. And if it's not one step ahead, it's at least very quickly behind. Because what matters in cybersecurity is speed. One of the interesting data points is that the time an attacker takes to compromise a victim and then find their way in the victim's network to encrypt the data that matters or to steal the data that matters has dramatically declined in the last couple of years. It's gone down from two months, two years ago, to nine days, to roughly 3.85 days. So speed matters to a defender Mm -hmm. because the speed at which they can detect and then work to root out the attacker or potentially what AI can do is enable defenders to learn about techniques that could be used before they are to adjust defenses to that. So there are ways in which to think about this that are reminiscent to me of the Cold War. Everyone beefs up, everyone arms, everyone has defensive shields or tries to apply defensive shields. Um, Is there a kind of understood or understood mutual assured destruction? Like, yes, there are things that we do at the margins. I'm sure the United States government is not a baby in this terrain. 
people know we have offensive capabilities as well as defensive capabilities. That's obvious. But the risks of going, let us say, full nuclear in the cyberspace area, everyone understands there are huge risks for both sides, correct? Am I getting that right? That's a good analogy. The one I think particularly applies is when we think about ballistic missile defense Mm -hmm. and missiles, where there's no static defense. We're always adjusting based on new offensive techniques and then adjusting the defenses to ensure that the castle walls are high enough. We have some of the most exquisite capabilities in the world. However, what we want to ensure is that the castle walls are high enough to defend at any given point in time, and we have strict rules in place of how they're used and when they're used to ensure they both meet the laws of armed conflict and and our broader national security goals. You mentioned that three quarters of the cyber criminals out there are based in Russia? Yes. How do we know that? Through our intelligence work. So, you know, you mentioned probing earlier. So on the digital side, good analysts can look at the IP addresses. Think about the address of our homes. Well, a system also has a technical address. And they can trace that IP address all the way back to where it the traffic originated. That becomes harder and harder through various ways that that traffic can be. Anyone who's seen a Mission Impossible movie knows that. Exactly. Can be anonymized, can be hidden, but tracing that back can eventually it's still It's still doable. It is doable through okay. good detective work, um, often good partnerships with private sector companies who run that digital infrastructure and can see those connections. And that's really how we trace back. And that's a key part of cyber defense and, frankly, international geopolitics around cyber, because that's how you do attribution. That's how you find a nation state or a criminal to be accountable and say, here are the rules of the road, and we intend to enforce them. Do we have a sense of whether or not those Russians are operating with or without the government's consent? It varies. Generally, Russian cybercrime is at least with a winking knowledge of Russian intelligence services. And that's why when we work to tackle this topic, a part of that often includes conversations with the Russian government to say this kind of activity is, we've agreed to say, off limits. Because critical services, if there is a disruptive, you know, going back to June of 2021, after the colonial pipeline um, criminal cyber attack, when President Biden discussed with President Putin and said, if there is a disruptive cyber attack coming out of your country, whether it's done by criminals or by an intelligence service, the country of origin is accountable for it. And will be held to account. It is, and that's indeed one of the international cyber norms that all countries have signed up for under the United Nations. A global government group of experts to say that countries are accountable for disruptive attacks against critical infrastructure and will work to address them if notified by a country that they have been the victim. The voice of Ann Newberger, who is the Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber and Emerging Technology. Segment three, the takeout from Old Evans Grill. Coming your way in just one second. Welcome back to the takeout. I promised a conversation about artificial intelligence. We're going to get to that. I want to ask Ann Newberger who is the Deputy National Security Advisor to President Biden on cyber and emerging technologies about something, we're recording this on February 12th, so put a pin in on that. Over this past weekend, in the high-tech city of San Francisco, an autonomous Waymo taxi was torched. 
people threw fireworks inside of it, covered it with graffiti, and bashed it to smithereens and cheered while it burned up on a public street in San Francisco. No one knows the true motive, but it was described in many of the stories written about this as a kind of resistance-fueled antipathy toward these autonomous vehicles in a place in which autonomous vehicle research is at the global apex or near the global apex. Why do I bring this up? Because I think it's worth pondering what our emotional, psychological reaction is to rapidly evolving technology, even in a place in which that technology provides untold riches, jobs, and all sorts of creative outlets, a place like San Francisco. So I'm not asking you, Ann Newberger, to offer a motive or a law enforcement perspective, but any thoughts on this intersection between resistance, antipathy, emotional reaction, hesitancy, or outright revulsion at technology changing our lives in unexpected and unwelcome ways? Yes. So first to your point, autonomous vehicles collect a large amount of data, data about the road, data about... They have to. They have to. That's how they can potentially allow a car to operate without a human driver. And they also potentially represent risks to people who are employed, taxi cab drivers. Right. Um, the side hustle of the whole Lyft economy, the Uber world, uh, Uber Eats, uh, DoorDash, all of that. Manufacturing jobs, right? If we all use autonomous cars, potentially share those cars, people Truck may drivers. buy fewer cars. Exactly. And indeed, when we look at artificial intelligence, there's, as the president has talked about, there's both tremendous promise for our economy. Think about using AI to customize learning in a classroom of 30 children where each may be learning at different levels, but also peril. Some of that peril is to jobs. You know, you may have seen, it was recently, I believe it was the IMF that reported that mm -hmm. between 40 to 60% of jobs would be affected by AI in advanced economies. One number currently being batted around is 85 million jobs globally impacted, threatened, or somehow influenced on the downward side, negative side, by artificial intelligence. That's a lot of people's lives. And I think the obligation, as the president has talked about it for us, as we look at artificial intelligence, is to both ensure we're leading in innovation, leading on applying the promise in our economy, in our lives, as well as managing for the risks. And those risks include things like ensuring that people who are in jobs that are affected have a path to training to another role. It includes addressing the way AI systems that are trained on biased data could potentially promote that bias, whether it's in loans, whether it's in, you know, whether it's in jobs and job opportunities, as well as it includes the national security side of it. You asked me earlier, AI can potentially accelerate the writing of malicious software. AI can potentially accelerate the finding of vulnerabilities in electricity systems and hospital systems to enable criminals to even compromise systems more quickly. And another example, you know, we saw some of the recent examples of voice cloning just over the weekend mm -hmm. in Pakistan. You had a jailed leader, Imran Khan, whose party won the leading place, and there was an AI-generated voice congratulating for that. In each of these areas, there is tremendous promise. You know, working backwards, my husband and I involved, have been involved in a charity for years that helps individuals with ALS. It's a truly debilitating disease because the person's brain 
is still operating, but they lose the ability to move, in many cases, the ability to talk. Right. And there are various technologies over the years where a person can bang their head against the side of the chair or blink, and that's translated to letters and words. Increasingly now, you know, charities, hospitals are voice banking, saving the person's voice to translate those physical movements to their own voice. What a gift for a person going through that disease, what a gift for their families. So we can see both the risks and potentially the rewards and what we're looking to from a government policy perspective at both the federal level, at the international level, at the state level, is putting in place the rules of the road to manage for some of those risks, even as we do and really think about how to use AI for good. And when you see something that falls into the category of kind of visible emotional reaction, the torching of a Waymo autonomous taxi in downtown San Francisco, does that send off any kind of warning signs to you about where people are in their comfort level? That's people, I would think, um, who are scared. Scared of what it represents in terms of impact to their personal privacy. Scared of what it and not sure the technology works as well as advertised. That it bumps into things. It 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 hits pedestrians. It it goes where it shouldn't go. It's not as good as advertised. And that's kind of a possible reaction against government, which the city council in San Francisco. I'm not an expert on this. Allowed them to operate more in more zones, and maybe people are like, hey, wait a minute, check this stuff out first. We want a voice in this. Right. I think that's why we've seen some of the legislation in the space operate at the state level as well as at the national level. So in California, for example, there's some interesting bills looking at autonomous decision-making and how AI can be used in those decisions and some of the rules around that. So if AI is used, for example, in making a decision around who gets a home loan, what kind of transparency is there on the data that that system was trained on? What kind of transparency is there? Who gets home insurance? Who gets car insurance? Yes. Who gets accepted at a university? How are those models red teamed or tested? So just last week, the, the Biden administration, Department of Commerce, stood up an AI safety center, as well as a consortium that brings together companies, academics, researchers, really looking at what should be standards for AI safety? How do we ensure sus- such systems are adequately red teamed and tested before they're released? And then red teamed and tested again. And that goes back to the really landmark executive order that President Biden um, released, which looked at various areas of risk. For example, one that's particularly close to my heart, which is how, where, and with what risk controls AI is deployed across critical infrastructure. Think, you know, one can see, for example, the potential value of an AI model determining for maximum traffic efficiency how rail signaling systems mm-hmm. operate. One would want to be sure that that AI system is cyber secure, right. that we understand how it makes decisions, where there's a human in the loop in those decisions. And those are the kinds of risk approaches that the president's executive order tasks the different regulators to study sector by sector across our economy to inform potential regulation and to inform safety rules. Have you yourself and Newberger taken any AI system out for a walk? I have. What's your experience been like? So it's really interesting to use systems like ChatGPT, large language models, and to see the responses one can get to questions, to, to ask, for example, you know, my husband and I said, write us a Yom Kippur speech. Okay. To get a sense. And it was a good speech. It was. It was a solid speech. Um, on the other hand, when one looks at some of the 
more targeted areas. You know, education is really interesting to us. I've looked at some of the work Sal Khan is doing in that space. As a parent myself, I have two children who learn in very different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, as we look at the larger school system, you can see the promise of having children think about how they're approaching a topic. I myself have taken classes online. I was trying to relearn linear algebra as part of taking a bunch of data science classes. And you can get stuck online when you have a question. The promise of an AI system to answer those questions can help students around the world get access to courses and learning that they may not have physically locally. So lots of promise in this space, but also an awareness of some of the issues we have to take on. Have you ever used ChatGPT to write a speech for you that's a public speech? I haven't. Okay. I've had fun playing with it okay. um, and asking questions, but I haven't actually asked it to write me a speech. Maybe something we try. <laughs> Maybe something you try. Because a lot of members of Congress who've been on this show and a couple of governors have said, yes, they have. They've given ChatGPT a chance to write a draft. And then they and their staff tweak it, work it, but they find the draft a kind of a very helpful starting spot. We'll continue our conversation with Ann Newberger from the Old Ebbett Grill in just one moment. This is the takeout. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome back to The Takeout. Welcome back to Old Ebbett Grill, downtown Washington, D.C. And Newberger is our guest, Deputy Director of National Security Council on Cyber and Emerging Technology. So, I was on Face the Nation at the end of the year. Our host, Margaret Brennan, my colleague, always asks reporters, what's the uncovered story of the year? And I said the uncovered story of the year 2023 was artificial intelligence. And she looked at me like, what? Don't you see how many stories there are? I said, could we have overcovered the splitting of the atom? Could we have overcovered electricity? Mm. No, you cannot write too much about this space. Because it seems to me that it will be even more ubiquitous than social media because it will touch so many other parts of our lives that are non-discretionary. Social media is still discretionary. We can live or live without that space. We're not gonna be able 20 years from now to live without artificial intelligence at some level or another. It will be everywhere, correct? Very much so. So I don't think we can talk about it or probe it or hold it up to the light too much. One of the things you do and think a great deal about in collaboration with a lot of other smart people is artificial intelligence and national security. What do you worry about? What are you optimistic about? I worry about 
adversaries using AI to make their own intelligence operations more effective, to uncover our operations. And what I'm optimistic about is the opportunity for us to produce time-sensitive indications and warnings much more quickly and to enable greater use of prior produced intelligence to produce better intelligence. What do I mean? Mm -hmm. Please. If you're in the intelligence community today, there's two missions. One is to warn as quickly as possible of an impending threat that's evolving. Where we're starting to see planning, we're seeing the elements of some type of attack coming together, and to get to those potential defenders quickly to enable them to be safe. That's a hard mission because you need to be able to detect whether it's people planning, who are the people, where are they, whether it's intelligence collection from satellites overhead to rapidly identify an object. Um, all of that AI can make better. For example, the people may be planning in a foreign language where the intelligence community may not have enough human linguists, so to translate that quickly. When we do satellite collection, we get a lot of looking at the ocean, not much happening, intermixed with a ship. Well, is that a ship that's affiliated with a regime that's moving weapons around the world illicitly? Is that a ship that we tie to prior drug smuggling? Those are things where AI can help do that image identification mm -hmm. much more quickly and frankly connect the two. So think about a case where you have known drug smugglers on an unknown ship. If you can bring that, what we traditionally call SIGINT, right. and GEOINT, satellite collection Signal quickly, intelligence, right. to help warn across those right. two, what some would call an AI multimodal, that would enable just more rapid identification for human analysts to take a look and say, this is something to consider. The second part of that is, over the years of our intelligence community, we've produced thousands and thousands of reports. And today, if I, um, or serving as a policymaker, or somebody across the intelligence community, wants to know everything the intelligence community knows over time about a given intelligence unit somewhere in Southeast Asia, somewhere in Europe. You write a query, and you'll get back tens or hundreds of reports. Right. But there's nothing that summarizes that for you in the most effective way. And that would potentially make even our existing reporting far more effective for you. So both of those are very promising applications for our own intelligence community, as you can see, very concerning applications um, when, we, when we can potentially see adversaries using it to make themselves more effective. And Anne, so help me through the science fiction of all this. Uh, more than one movie has portrayed thinking soldiers or self-learning soldiers that are robots and they are part of a large battalion or army and they're doing all of the dirty work and they're doing it in a thinking adaptive way and you can find that I'm not a gamer I've never played a video game in my life that is a full-blown confession but I understand that there are spaces in which this idea exists is that possible is that something that is only for the realm of science fiction so that's a topic of much debate. Um, some Very will safe say, answer. <laughs> some will say that AI systems are statistically predicting um, what the answer is based on words that have been near each other. And some say that AI systems over time will become thinking systems, able to generate new insights. Or hallucinating systems. Yes, and there's some of that today. In some terms of that of already, yes. seen with making up court cases. or So that's the debate. Asking journalists to leave their spouse. 
in a famous case at the New York Times. Indeed. Look it up, kids. Um, <laughs> and I think the bottom line is that as humans, we control, we should control. We should control. steps to that with regard to the kind of red teaming and testing we do, the kind of systems that we deploy, the way we allow AI systems to potentially connect to physical systems, like manufacturing lines, like robots. Um, and that is what will play out in the coming years. So one of the things I love to do for my audience benefit is take terms that we know about in DC, but they may not be as familiar with. So what is red teaming? Testing. Essentially, think about a team of attackers trying to get a system to do something it wasn't designed to do. So you're, watch, you're asking someone within your group to be an adversary to use their best skills to try to do something harmful and you watch and see if they're successful. Yes, either because the system wasn't designed to do it or because controls were built in to prevent it doing that and the red teaming attackers try to overcome those controls and get a system to do that. So you want them to be at their baddest. You do. In an ideal world, you want the defenses to always be one step ahead. In most cases, the red teamers are successful, but then that's used to feed adjustments to defense to make them better. So it's a constant back and forth. It's never static. Ideally, you know, in the old cybersecurity terms, it was white hats and black hats. Mm, okay. You know, you will consistently be testing a system to try to um, find weaknesses to then close those weaknesses and then find new ones. Going back to where we started talking about cyber hospitals and things, um, is this a urban America thing or a rural America thing? It's an all of America thing. But rural America is particularly vulnerable because you could have a small town in Indiana or in rural Texas, where that clinic is the only clinic for miles around. So unlike a big city, where if a hospital's hit by a cyber attack, individuals can potentially have their treatment a few blocks down the road. In rural communities, they often meet people. Americans may need to travel in order to do that. So as a result, you know, the president made clear that we really want to be sure that every American has access to medical care, can trust and feel safe. So in partnership with key tech companies, the White House is rolling out free cybersecurity services for the 1,800 rural hospitals around the country. That'll take some time. We're going to have to work hospital by hospital to ensure that that cybersecurity is in place, to ensure that staff is trained. But the goal is that every American, no matter where you live in this country, even in the most small town or county, can trust that your hospital systems will be safe. Voice of Ann Newberger. She is the Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber and Emerging Technology. Stay tuned for your takeout. Outtake Especial. Our thanks, as always, to Hold Up, and we'll see you next week. Welcome to your takeout, Outtake Especial. So we're going to calm it down here, folks. I know that was nerdvilia for like a full hour almost, which this show has a well-earned reputation for. And, and I'm proud of that. Yes, and I'm proud of that. And Newberger is our special guest, a deputy director, deputy national security advisor for cyber and emerging technology. So we're going to lighten it up. I promise, promise, no more heavyweight stuff. You may be familiar, having watched the show a couple of times, with our three threshold questions. Our audience loves the answers, so lean into them as much as you wish. Most influential book, Ann Newberger, and your life, and why? All-time favorite movie? And if you're on a long flight or a long drive, what kind of music, artist, or genre are you most likely to listen to? Because you're going to be really happy while you're listening to it. 
So my favorite book is a book called Geniuses at War. And it tells the story, so during the early 1940s, Britain, London, underwent the Blitz. And it tells the story of a group who worked to break the Luftwaffe's encryption, break the codes that they used in order to shorten the war, in order to save lives. And I love the book for a few reasons. And I love it so much, I actually bought a bunch of copies and hand them out to folks as, <laughs> as goodbye gifts. Um, first, because the collection of individuals, you know, we're not grads of the top schools, top trained. Um, you had, you know, most, one of the most interesting characters is Tommy Flowers. You know, they, would, they said he had a, an accent from Covent Garden, mm-hmm. you know, but he was an engineer. And you have an individual, certainly Alan Turing, Alan Turing um, yep. who suffered greatly mm-hmm. um, after the war. Um, individuals, an individual with a, a Jewish-German father. And they came together and they built a machine um, against a lot of odds, mm-hmm. against a lot of skepticism um, that ended up breaking the Germans' codes and shortening the war. You know, my, uh, my family was in the Nazi death camps at the time. So when they talk about that war, that, what they built and their mm-hmm. courage and persistence and innovation saving lives, that was, that was my family. Um, that was millions of individuals across Europe. That was the cause of liberty and freedom. Mm-hmm. And reading the book, you see that, you know, their work wasn't necessarily celebrated as they worked to build mm-hmm. um, that machine. And it wasn't necessarily celebrated afterwards. But look at the impact in terms of freedom. Look at the impact they had. So knowing that sometimes um, sometimes our work, our causes aren't necessarily easy. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's or joy. Or celebrated in the moment. Exactly. But there's joy in, in taking that step. Give my audience the title one more time. Geniuses at War. Very good. Favorite movie? Favorite movie, probably a bit related, is Hidden Figures. Right, okay. I love yes. the movie so much, I've watched it a lot of times. Super Once, fun movie, super, super fun, fun movie. movie. So, so great. much to it, right? The story of friendship among women, mm-hmm. the story of what was America, how far we've come. Yep. Um, the story of the genius of individuals. You know, when you watch her writing those formulas on the blackboard, you're just amazed and inspired. You so, are indeed. favorite movie of all time. Excellent. And uh, favorite kind of music? So I have to admit, I love music, so it's whatever comes up in my Spotify feed, <laughs> and all kinds of genres, I just love music. Mm-hmm. So it's, and if the mood that day, you need to pick me up, I'll So do you, when on Spotify, and this is not an advertisement, though they are welcome to sponsor us, um, I use Spotify, and, and I'll pick an artist that I love, and I'll just write so-and-so artist, ra- radio, so like uh, Paul Simon Radio. Do you ever use that fun- function? No, but I will. So put in your favorite artist, yeah. then put radio, and then they will give you an algorithmic playlist of that artist and artist-adjacent music. So you'll find things that you may not have thought of as either musically or lyrically adjacent, and they're super great. So I, a couple of weeks ago, I put in Mahalia Jackson, and I found all this other gospel stuff that I'd never heard of in my entire life, and it was amazing. You do that with Led Zeppelin, you can do that with The Who, you can do that with anybody. Uh, Bonnie Raitt, uh, Sarah Vaughn, anybody. So, not an advertisement, though. You're welcome to consider this show. Anyway, and I'm Newberger, it's been a blast. Likewise, I love that, and I love somebody else who likes gospel. And uh, thanks for having me here. Great conversation. We'll see, you, we'll see you next week, folks. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanen. 
Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus.